Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we think about what it means to overcome false teaching and not to have it involved in our lives, that you would speak clearly to us through your word. Thank you that your word is, is good and true and we can trust it. Father, would you remove all things that are distracting us this morning and help us to hear from you by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Some book titles you might be interested in, in hearing or, to, or reading. Blessed for success, seeing God as your source. Your best life now, seven steps to live life at your full potential. Become a better you. It's your time to win. If I give you a cheesy smile, it might give you a hint at who, who the author is of this book. If not, don't worry, you don't need to know. Friends, this morning, be a Christian because God wants you to have the best life possible. You are a child of the king. He wants you to live like a king. Be happy, be rich, be healthy, have it all now. I'm a bit worried no one has got up quickly to stop me from carrying on with this kind of preaching. Is that the gospel that we've been hearing from 2 Timothy the last few weeks? Is that the message that we're to pass on to other people? The promise of life from chapter 1? Is it the, the, the good deposit that we saw in chapter 1? Are these the things that were Paul passed to Timothy, that he passes to others, and that we have today to believe in? Well, you know, it sounds quite good, doesn't it? That kind of a gospel might suit us when we think about it. Because we've heard some pretty hard things so far in 2 Timothy. Hardship and opposition and suffering. Having to deal with these kind of things is, well, we don't really want to do it, do we? We much prefer a gospel that talks about happiness and health and wealth. But it's not the gospel, is it? It's not the gospel that we've heard so far. You know, God does promise happiness. He does promise riches. He does promise health. But he promises them ultimately for heaven, as Alex showed us in the kid's story. If we expect it all now, then that's what we call an over-realized eschatology. Same with these problem in Ephesus, whether they were, they were false teachers. And, and among many things that they were teaching, one of them was a more simpler version of this type of a thing. You see in verse 18 that they were preaching that the resurrection has already happened, and that had other consequences, which we'll look at in a moment. They, they believe that we want to have a true and complete Christian life now, that we have a spiritual resurrection that is, that is real, that will last. The body is corrupt, and you, you can do whatever you want with that, but spiritually we're renewed. We have victory, we have full life now to enjoy. Throughout church history, false teaching has unfortunately gone alongside good teaching. Right at the beginning in the New Testament, we see it. But as the early church grew and developed, as they met together in councils, as they prayed and discussed sincerely in God's word, what is truth? What does the Bible teach? As they formulated doctrine and theology together, false teachers were trying to get in and bring in their influences and their doctrine. And even today, we hear false teachers in various churches promoting what they think, what they say is a correct interpretation of the gospel. But it's actually a different gospel. It's different from that which has been passed down to us. It's different from that that we read in the Bible. 
So if we hear false teaching today, what do we do about it? How do we respond? How do we respond in a way that's, that's right, that's biblical, that's godly? I think Paul gives Timothy some advice here in this second chapter for how he and his church should deal with it. So firstly, we should resist false teachers and false teaching. Resist it, Paul says in verse 14. Warn them against quarreling about words. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will only become more and more ungodly. Paul uses these terms, quarreling, godless chatter, stupid arguments, to refer to what is going on in the church as they argue and debate about these various teachings that are going on. But Paul is saying, don't get involved in those things. Stay away completely. You have some nice new teaching, a a gospel that may sound a bit more appealing. It's very interesting to to hear. And maybe you want to discuss it. You want to get into a debate. You want to ponder its truth, perhaps. You want to look at the Bible and think, well, maybe maybe this this could be right. Perhaps these false teachers have taken something that is true, i.e. the resurrection, or they've mixed it with their own ideas, perhaps their own culture, their own religious background. Being Greeks, they thought, well, you know, the body is, is sinful and, and, and corrupt and we, we can't have a physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection is much better. And so they present this kind of teaching. But it's all about interpretation of words. They're quarreling about words, as Paul says here. In 1 Timothy, you have a similar thing. There are teachers there who are looking at genealogies and focusing in on details of the Bible and thinking, they're trying to come up with some weird and wonderful ideas of of what life is all about and who God is. Bible codes, I'm sure you've heard of that in recent years. Looking into detail of that that's not really there. Creating something that's not really true. And so why is Paul saying to avoid all these things? Well, he says, it's of no value, and it ruins those who listen. Those who engage in it become more and more ungodly, verse 16. So as they hear it, as they're influenced by it, as they think this sounds good, you start to believe it, but because it's false, it leads them down a dangerous path, a path into sin, a path into being disillusioned, because when they see the false teaching isn't real, they, they start to doubt God. And they move away from him. And for some, it destroys their faith and they wander completely away from God. You see, if I was to preach what I preached at the beginning of the sermon, you know, it does sound quite nice and that kind of a gospel would be very appealing. And maybe you'd experience some, some happy times in life. And of course we do. Some riches and some health. But it wouldn't take long, would it, for you to realize, well, actually, hold on. I still get ill. I still suffer, I lose my money, or I find it hard to get money. So if this is supposed to be all that is in the resurrection, well, it doesn't match my experience. What does that say about my faith? Maybe I don't have enough faith. What does it say about God? Maybe he doesn't love me enough to give me what I want. And we can end up down a dangerous path, can't we? lose our faith and stray right away from God. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, stay away from these things. Stay away from stupid arguments that are not true to the word of God. So avoid the false teaching that goes on. 
but instead focus on what is true, focus on the truth. Timothy is to look at his own character, his own walk with the Lord, his own dealings with the Bible. Verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Those false teachers, well, they're quite concerned about what other people think of them. They like to have people's attention. They like people liking their gospel because, hey, it sounds appealing. But Timothy's not to be like that. He's to focus on what God thinks and what God cares. He uses a metaphor here of a worker, a worker doing his task correctly, using the right tools, doing an accurate job. He's not to be like these rogue builders we see on TV, but to be one that does their job well and correctly and presents a finished job that's true to the plans. He's to plow a straight line, so that that term, handle correctly the word of God, or divide the word of God correctly, it's, it's meaning to cut a straight line through the middle, to be accurate, to plow a field well, to sow the seam along the straight line, to be a worker that presents his job as he should. So he's not ashamed of it. He's worked hard. He's put in the effort. That's what Timothy's supposed to do with the word of God, to study it carefully, to take seriously what the Bible says and to interpret it in the way that it should be, to focus on what is true so that Timothy can come to God and, and, and not be ashamed of his efforts, but to be diligent in presenting to him what he has done. So who is it in the church that has this kind of responsibility? Those people who have to handle God's word correctly. I suppose the people you think of immediately are those who preach God's word. People who have that responsibility, as I do this morning, to to present God's word accurately, to have thought about it, to have studied it carefully, to have questioned it. Now, of course, I don't do that all the time. I make mistakes. And Dan does, and other people will do too. But it should be our goal, our motivation to want to deal with God's scriptures well and correctly, to present ourselves to God as one approved, not to other people. Not only to handle God's word correctly, but to know how to do it as well. Preaching a passage from the Bible, it's it's not easy. You can't just get up and do it. You need to put in the effort, the work, the study to read around the subject, to understand it, to them to be able to apply it. The Bible is made up of, of um, different genres. It's written in a different time, in a different culture, in a different context. And we've got to understand how that works and how it applies to us today. So when it comes to handling God's word, well, there's no room for, for being careless, for being glib. There's no room for us to add in our own interpretations and to Say what we think it should say, and not what it actually says. So may I I encourage you to pray for those who preach in church. Pray for those who preach generally. But pray for the Sunday school teachers, because they're teaching the word of God. Pray for home group leaders who, who teach it during the week. You know, pray for all of us, as in different ways and in different contexts, we look at the word of God and we share it and we teach it to others. We have a responsibility to do it well. Let's resist ideas and teachings and speculations, controversies. 
Let's not give them the airtime. But let's come to God's word truthfully. Let's submit to its authority. And let's teach it well. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking around different churches and you're trying to decide where to settle. Make it a priority that you want to settle in a church that handles the word of God correctly and truthfully. So resist false teachings and false teachers. Secondly, remove false teaching from our churches and from our lives. Paul is concerned that these things don't overcome Timothy and overcome the church and take over the church. Timothy may well be concerned about what is going to happen in the future if these things continue to happen. And Paul wants to encourage Timothy that God is in control. He knows what's happening and he knows who are true Christians. Look down with me at verse 19. So although this teaching is going on, although it's spreading like gangrene, it's destroying the faith of some, Paul says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So God knows those who are truly Christian. They're, they're sealed, they're secure by the Holy Spirit. They won't fall away. So we can trust in God's faithfulness. He has two quotes or two sayings in this verse. The first, the Lord knows those who are his. And Paul may well be thinking about a passage back in the Old Testament, Numbers 13. Now back here we have the story of Korah and the group of people of Korah um, among the Israelites who rebelled against Moses and rebelled against God. Basically you have the people have not long come out of Egypt, but they've also not long rejected the promised land. And they're now beginning their 40-year wander around the wilderness. And these people of Korah, they're part of the tribe of Levi. So they have some special responsibility in the temple, in the tabernacle, to, to do some, some work there. So it's quite a, a good job they have. But they're not happy and they want more. They feel that they are holy enough to be able to have more responsibility. They don't like the fact that Moses seems to have this exclusive right to, to rule everybody. And so they rebel against him and they question his authority. But unfortunately, in questioning Moses, they're questioning and rebelling against God. And so when they come to him, Moses says to them, in the morning, the Lord will show you who belongs to him and who is holy. Unfortunately, these people in their rebellion, in their disobedience, had turned away, had turned away from God. And ultimately, they were destroyed. If you read the passage, you see them there gathered around their tents, and the ground opens up, and they're swallowed into the ground. Gone. The Korites and two other groups of people just disappear. Them and only them. Everybody else survives. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy, saying, look, the Lord knows who are his and who aren't. He deals with them well, correctly. He judges those who need to be judged. And so it's to be an encouragement. And as Christians, we can be encouraged too. We know that all those who truly confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are saved. Paul tells us in Ephesians that he gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal, a guarantee of that the deposit, as a guaranteeing our future of what is to come. So we can trust in God's faithfulness. But then he has another quote or another saying, 
everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, this isn't actually a direct quote from anywhere in the Bible. Perhaps it's a, a few biblical thoughts brought together. We know that phrase, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord. Paul talked about that in Romans, doesn't he? That kind of sign of true faith. If we confess to the Lord, then we will be saved. But salvation leads on to sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, removing sin from our lives and becoming more holy. So if we can confess the name of the Lord, then we must also turn away from wickedness. But Paul could also be still referring back to the story in number 16. Because just before the ground opened up and swallowed up the Korites, Moses said to all those who were around, move away, move away from their tents so you don't get caught up with this judgment. And so they do, and as they move out the way, they avoid being swallowed up by the ground. And it's that moving away from sin, isn't it, that that we're to do, move away from what is ungodly, from what is wicked, and turn to what is good and what is true. So in removing false teaching from us, we're to trust God's faithfulness, but also to turn away from wickedness, not to have it involved in our lives. We have a responsibility to to get rid of sin from us, to get rid of teaching that's not right, to not allow it to be a part of the church, to be rid of those who are teaching it if they're unwilling to repent, but to produce good and right fruit. Paul then goes on and uses this illustration of a large house. Verse 20. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared for any good work. Now, you may well have been around one of these grand stately homes. If not, you may have seen it on Downton Abbey. But inside you have a nice big long dining room table, don't you? Wonderful and special. And on it, there are various articles made of gold and silver. Maybe you have a a jug made of silver to pour the wine. Some tall candlesticks to hold the candles. Things and instruments that that are good and precious and used for honorable things. But also in the house, maybe downstairs, in the kitchen, you have things made of wood and clay. Used for preparing food, for cleaning rubbish, for brushing the floor. Things that are common don't bring honor necessarily to the household. Paul is saying the house represents the church. The articles are are either the people or their behavior, some which are good and and honorable, some which are not and and are not dishonorable. And let's get rid of those things which are dishonorable, those things that are useless, that are not good, that are not right, that are not building up the church. We're to cleanse ourselves of those things. Paul says, those who cleanse themselves of the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared for any good work. Now, it is a little bit confusing exactly what Paul is, is saying with this metaphor. Does he mean to cleanse the church of false teachers or false teaching or a bit of both? Now, it's true, we must get rid of those people who are persistently and unrepentingly teaching false things. They shouldn't be allowed in the church. But it's also true that we should get rid of 
I think, false teaching that's within our own lives and false beliefs. But because false teachers can repent and can change, I think Paul is saying that we need to get rid of false teaching and beliefs from ourselves. Why? Because these things are, are poison. Paul uses the, the phrase, the word gangrene. It's the poison that grows within the body and, in, and it spreads and spreads. And unless it's dealt with, it ultimately will kill. We need to get rid of it and turn from what is false and turn to what is true. Being cleansed of these things means that we're holy, we're ready, we're prepared to serve the Lord. We're vessels that are clean, that are pure, so God can use us. And Paul gives hope. Paul gives hope to Timothy that teachers, false teachers, can change. That we can remove false teaching. That we can, that we can see false teachers change. And so thirdly, he talks about reproving false teachers. We've got to get rid of this from our, our church because these things are dangerous. So how do we respond? Well, the temptation for Timothy and for others may well be to try and change them by entering into these arguments and these debates. I know for me it can be a temptation, especially when doing evangelism and with certain people who like to have a good debate. You can get carried away in it and you can start arguing with them and but you end up doing it in an ungodly way and you raise your voice too high and you start saying things that you don't really mean. And it's not godly. <clears throat> it's not right. It's not, it's not helpful. You may win the argument, but you'll end up losing the person. So Paul is saying, you've got to keep away. Keep away from such things. Keep away from such attitudes and such motivation. Paul describes it as the evil desires of youth in verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That desire to want to be hot-headed and to, to try and win the argument. I remember at university, young students loved to have arguments and debates, Christians particularly, over various doctrines. It happens a lot in Wales. And, um, and this would, this would be, it'd be disappointing because people would be having good arguments about good theology but they'd end up saying things to one another that they didn't, didn't really mean. It caused hurt and pain and sin would come in. They weren't building one another up. They weren't helping one another to see the truth of the word. And so Paul says, respond in godly, with godly character. Because it's not godly to be, to quarrel. When you think about a quarrel, you think about the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, don't you? There's no love, there's no peace, there's no kindness, there's no self-control. There's a complete absence of all that is good and godly in quarreling. And so Christians shouldn't do it. The Lord's servant, as Paul says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind, able, able to teach, and not be resentful. So this is how Timothy is to respond, to pursue what is right and what is good to be speaking with love and with peace, with kindness, with gentleness, with respect. Those who are wanting the arguments are probably not thinking these things. They want to have quarrels. They're happy with saying things that other people don't like. They're happy perhaps saying bad things about Timothy, putting down his own teaching, 
telling people that he's wrong. But Timothy isn't to respond in kind, but he's to respond in kindness. To be above reproach. Not to get down to their level, but to be godly and to be righteous. We can have the right side in the argument, we can have the truth, but if we don't say it in love, as Paul, say, as Paul says in Corinthians, then we're like a clanging symbol, aren't we? We're useless, we're no good for anything. When we quarrel, when we are involved in stupid arguments, we're not going to win the person for Christ because we're going to be a bad witness. And so Paul encourages Timothy to be good. And he does that in many of his letters. That we need humility to have grace in your conversations. In Romans he tells us not to, not to overcome evil with evil, but to love our enemies. Peter himself, in his epistle, he talks about um, speaking with, with grace and with respect and humility when we tell people the hope that we have in Christ. So respond with godly character. But then also to correct our opponents with hope that they will change. Timothy is to gently instruct, verse 25. Opponents must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice what Timothy's to do, but also how he's to do it. So you have the opponents, those he's not supposed to be resentful of. He's to instruct them because he's able to teach. And he's to instruct them gently with his kindness. We're to live good and godly lives so people see the difference in our lives. We're to display Christ through our actions and through our words so that they will come to him, that they will listen. They will give us the time as we speak As we speak truth into them, they will respect us and want to hear because we're not at them them with quarrels and arguments. I remember when I was a a relay worker up in North Wales, I was involved in a (laughs) false accusation of false teaching. My pastor, who was speaking in the CU, had supposedly said something that was misunderstood. And then my boss, the staff worker, had to come and deal with it. So I found myself right in the middle of it. My pastor and my boss had loggerheads together. It was around that time where people were denying that Jesus was punished for our sins on the cross. And so you can imagine that the tension in evangelistic talks, people wanted to make sure that they, they spoke what was true and accurate. And some student had misunderstood what the past, my pastor had said and had told the staff worker, And this could have gone completely out of control. There could have been arguments, there could have been quarrels, there could have been debates, there could have been all sorts of things. But the staff worker, maybe he'd read to Timothy, he dealt with it really well. And he went to speak to this pastor. He invited me along to be kind of a a middleman, a neutral voice. But he was dealt with gently, in a very civil way, with respect. There was no correction needed because there was a misunderstanding made. But it could have been a lot worse. So how do we deal with false teachers, false teaching that may arise in the church? To correctly handle the word of of truth. To know what truth is. To know what the Bible truly says. To be confident in that. 
having God's approval within us, that we can come alongside those who are false teachers and we can show them from Scripture, look, this is our authority, the Bible is true, this is what we should believe, not these other tales and, and controversies that you're involved in. But to do that with grace and with respect and with humility. Because we need to realize that these false teachers are in a, in a sad place. Paul says that they are blinded by the devil. They're in his trap. They've been taken captive by him to do his will. The devil loves it when false teachers rise up and start proclaiming things. He loves it when other people gather around these false teachers and and move away from the gospel. It's great for him. People are blinded to the truth. But there is hope. There is hope that they can change. There's hope that God will be merciful to them, will show them their error of their ways. There's hope that they'll come to their senses and see what is true and will repent of it and turn to what is right. I don't know what your experience is of false teaching, of false teachers. It may never have been your experience, it may, but it may well have been. Maybe in the past you've been involved, you've been a victim perhaps of false teaching and, and you've seen the, the mess that it can make of people's lives. Maybe you've come through that by God's grace and you found healing, you found forgiveness, you found reconciliation, you found the truth in God's word. But maybe you are still hurting. Maybe there are still things that are hard for you. Maybe the, the truth still is difficult because you still have these wrong ideas in your head. Well, there is hope. There is hope in the gospel. And you're a student who came from a, a very difficult background. She was part of a so-called Christian group who were taught very contrary things, things that are contrary to the Bible. And her and her family were trapped in this situation. She wasn't allowed to do so many things and to associate with so many things in the world, but she managed to get out. She managed to get away. She And she saw the truth. She met Christians and she heard the true gospel had come to true faith. It was difficult for her. But by grace, by the Spirit of God, she grew and blossomed in her faith and continues to walk with the Lord now. But for many of us, our experience of false teaching may well be non-existent. You can praise God for that. Praise God for good, sound teachers that you may have had in the past. But we've got to be aware that the devil is active. He's out there like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. He's using people taking them captive to do his will. Wolves in sheep's clothing, teaching things that may well be nice to hear. We have to be on guard. When people preach at the front of church, have the Bible open in front of you. Test what I say, what Dan says, what other people say to the Bible. Home groups are a wonderful thing. Great time of encouragement, of sharing, of discussion, of prayer together in a small context. But they have in the past and potentially can in the future be fertile ground for little ideas to grow, for false teaching to arise. Interesting thoughts about maybe it might mean this. Let's be wise. Let's be careful about the things that we hear, the conversations that we have. Let's be careful of the books that we read. Don't buy those books I mentioned at the beginning. Let's be aware of these things that may might arise. 
Avoid false teaching and dangerous controversies. Stand up for what is true. Know the word of God accurately, that you're able to come alongside those who are misunderstanding it, to bring them back to what is true. Let's keep away from gospels that are contrary to the one that's being passed down to us, that we may come to God, to him, for his approval. As we come to scripture, let our final song be a prayer to us. Some words from it. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us. Shape and fashion us like your, like in your likeness. Second verse. Words of power that can never fail. Let the truth prevail over unbelief. And the final verse. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo on through eternity. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory.